This morning our reading comes from the book of Genesis. There will be two sections. There will be a New Testament passage and an Old Testament passage. So we will be reading from Genesis chapter 12 and then in a moment from Hebrews chapter 11. As we begin looking at the life and the story of God's call and fulfillment of his covenant with Abraham. Genesis 12 starting in verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abraham went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abraham was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And Abraham took Sarah his wife, and Lot his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered And the people that they had acquired in Haran, and they set out to go to the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abraham passed through the land to the place at Shechem, to the oak of Morah. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abraham and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord, who had appeared to him. From there he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel, and pitched his tent with with Bethel on the west and and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And Abraham journeyed on, still going towards the Negeb. Turn with me to the book of Hebrews chapter 11. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it the people of old received their commendation. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteousness, as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken... He was commended as having pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Verse 7. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go to the place that he was to receive as an inheritance. When he went out, not knowing where he was going, by faith he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Let's pray as we prepare to hear from Pastor Paul. Father, Lord, as we've opened up your word, I pray that our hearts and ears and our minds would be open to the studying of it. I pray, Father, that we would indeed see that this covenant that you, uh, this promise and covenant that you've made with Abraham, Lord, is still uh, unfolding before us. And Father, you are a, a faithful God who never takes back your promises and you always make good on them. So, Father, I pray, Lord, that we would see uh, the beauty of who you are and the fact that out of, out of nothing, you not only called all things into being, 
but Father, that through it you want great things for your people. And so, Lord, we love you, and it's by your grace alone, through our faith in you, Father, that we can even know you. And so, Lord, I pray this morning that our hearts would be soft and would be open. And Father, would we, um, as we turn off the stream or we leave this place, Father, uh, in, in some moments here, Lord, I pray that we would not leave the same as when we arrived. Or when the TV first went on, Father, I pray that we would be transformed by the renewal of our minds because of your great and mighty promises. Lord, we love you, and we ask this in your name. It is good to gather together on this Lord's Day, August the 23rd. Last week we considered the first 75 years of Abraham, the world he came into and the family that he was born into and the God that he was drawn into relationship with. And as I indicated last week, these things matter for our lives because we don't just start by being called by God. We, we have a history. We have something that we have been called out of. We've read that twice now, being called out of darkness into his marvelous light. And I wanted to just take a couple moments before we actually look at chapter 12 to explain the subtext of the series, Abraham, friend of God and father of faith. The word friend of God or the phrase friend of God is one that just baffles me. It's a phrase that's found three times actually in the scriptures referring to Abraham. James 2.23, I think, is one that we're certainly familiar with. So the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him for righteousness, and he was called God's friend. The Bible's not making that up. And I think to myself, well, is this friendship in any meaningful way? How does one be a friend of God? Like, what does that look like? Well, we'll talk about a number of those things over these coming months, and I hope that we can just sort of add to our understanding of friendship with God as we go along. But certainly friendship involves communication. It involves the ability to talk back and forth with one another. We find it said of uh, Moses that Moses talked with God face to face as a man speaks to his friend. And so we'll see how God spoke openly to Abraham. Particularly, we get a beautiful example of this when he talked to him about the fact that he would have a child. And both he and his wife laughed. And then how he talked to him about the punishment that was coming on Sodom and how they had a discussion back and forth about those things. The point simply is this, is that being a friend of somebody, and certainly a friend of God, means that there's a communication. There's a two-way um, uh, communication that takes place. The second thing, though, that friendship is built on is trust. And often that trust works itself out in obedience. A friend takes another friend at their word. They trust him. They obey him. Uh, the Bible talks about David and Jonathan having an intimate friendship, a, an incredible friendship between these two men. And in one instance, they're, they're planning about how um, Jonathan might communicate to David Saul's intentions towards him. And Jonathan says to David, whatever you say, I will do for you. It's this incredible expression of trust and even obedience in a friendship. And so too, we see this with Abraham time and again. He obeyed God and he trusted God. That's what a friendship is built on then. Communication and trust and obedience. And I want us to have this in the back of our minds as we continue through this series. Can I be a friend of God? 
I think it's important that we ask that question because the Bible says that, yes, we can be friends of God. Jesus was speaking with his disciples shortly before his death, and one of the ways he encouraged them was through these words of friendship. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down for his, his life for his friends. And then Jesus says to them, you are my friends if you do what I command. There it is again, the trust, the obedience. But then he says, no longer do I call you servants, for the servant doesn't know what the master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all that I have heard from my father I have made known to you. So there again we have it, those, those sort of two foundations of friendship. One is communication, and the other is trust. And I think as we understand that together, well, how do we communicate with God, and how does God communicate with us? Well, one of the primary means is God has given us his word. People often ask me, well, God doesn't talk to me. I don't know what God says. Well, read his word. Again and again and again, it says, thus God says. And it's not only a, a word that is a historical word, it's a word that's a personal word. God speaks to us through his word. And we communicate to him through prayer. And that's a friendship and a relationship is built with God. And, and then there are clearly times when God asks us to trust him and to obey him. J.I. Packer in his book, Knowing God, says that we have great incentive to worship God and love God in the thought that for some unfathomable reason, he wants me as his friend and desires to be my friend and has given his son to die for me in order to realize his purpose. I really believe that we need friends. We really need friends. We need human friends and we need divine friends. And I read a quote a number of years ago in a book entitled Made for Friendship, which is just a great book. But in it, he quotes J.C. Ryle and he says, The world is full of sorrow because it is full of sin. It's a dark place. It's a lonely place. It's a, dis a disappointing place. But the brightest sunbeam in it is a friend. Friendship halves our troubles and doubles our joys. Loved ones, we don't need more counselors. We need more friends. And we need to learn what it is to enter into a friendship with God. So Abraham is called a friend of God, and we will work that out over the course of these next number of weeks. The second thing is he's called the father of faith. Fascinating to me that Abraham is actually attributed to be the father of three faiths. He's the father of Islam. He's the father of Judaism. And he's the father of Christianity, Christians. I don't have time to go into the distinctions between that and how they all claim him as their father. But the reality is, is that if you read through the Bible and certainly into the New Testament, you find that again and again and again, Abraham is referred to as our father, as our spiritual father. That as sons and daughters of God through faith in Christ, we can trace our spiritual lineage back to Abraham, our father. Abraham is the spiritual father of all who have faith. And Romans 4 opens that up to us in a wonderful way. One pastor I was listening to a couple weeks ago says, if you are a genuine Christian today, you have a closer link to Abraham than if you were a secular Jew. 
So we will see this again, and it's important for us to understand that, that um, we can, as Christians, draw our line of spiritual heritage. If we were to go to Ancestry.ca, the spiritual version of that, we could draw our line of ancestry all the way back to Abraham. And the amazing thing is not only do we draw our line of ancestry back to Abraham, but the Bible tells us that we can draw that line ahead to this incredible day when, as the writer of Revelation tells us, that after this I looked and behold a great multitude that nobody could number from every nation, from all the tribes and peoples of languages, standing before the throne of God, clothed in white robes and palm branches in their hands, that every single person who ever puts their faith in Christ can rightly call Abraham their father. And so Abraham is also our, the father of faith. And so I want us to just keep those two realities in our minds as we study the life of Abraham, friend of God and father of faith. So now as we come to chapter 12 of Genesis, which uh, has already been read to us, we realize that Abraham is stranded. He's stranded in Haran. He got on a caravan with his father and some of his family, and they made a 900-kilometer journey from Ur all the way up to Haran. And his first 75 years, as we looked at, could be described as lived in vanity and pride. His father had recently died. He had intended to go to Canaan, but they never made it. So we think, well, what's a son to do now? Stuck in Haran. Father's gone. What do I do? If you were reading the Bible for the first time, and you came to the end of chapter 11, and maybe even coming to chapter 12, you, you kind of would be expecting doom. Remember I said last week, three strikes and you're out. We have the, we have the fall, um, we have the flood, and we have the Tower of Babel. After the fall, there was judgment, and then God's grace. After the flood, there was judgment, and then God's grace. When we come to the Tower of Babel, all we have is judgment. And what we're really expecting now is just the end of mankind, the abolition of man, so to speak. Three strikes and you're out. God's judgment is going to be permanent. Man is done for good. But notice that amazing phrase that starts verse 1 of chapter 12. Now the Lord said to Abraham. That's an astounding few words. God speaks. And behind the voice of God and the words of God is the explanation for everything. And one of the amazing characteristics about God is that he's a speaking God. He's a God of words. And his words have power. And his words have effect. And his words have truth. And that's one of the amazing things about the Christian faith and about the God that we put our trust in is that he's a God that speaks. And we find him speaking in the very first instance in back in Genesis chapter 1 verse 3 when he says, let there be light. God said, let there be light. And what? There was light. Can you imagine the power of that kind of word? He, he didn't think it into being. He didn't imagine it into being. He spoke not only light, but the world into being. It was created through, the, through his 
words. And so the God who spoke the world and the universe into existence now speaks to Abraham. It's it's like God is about to speak redemption. And through his speech to Abraham, he invites him into a relationship with him. And the fact that Abraham and you and I are made in the image of God, you've got to think that through. God is a speaking God. God is a God that, that, that communicates through speech. We are made in the image of God. How do we image God? One of the ways we image God is through speaking and through speech. And so God invites him into a relationship of speech. And as I already said, one of the marks of friendship is communication. What's the first sign that a marriage is in trouble? You stop talking to one another. A husband and wife don't speak to one another anymore. Communication dries up. There's a fellow, some of you may know, um, Cliff Richard. He had this song, We Don't Talk Anymore describing relationships and when you don't talk when you don't speak to one another you increasingly live separate lives because speech is an audible form of a real and living relationship if there's no speaking there's no relationship if if you're in relationship with a husband or a wife or with a friend you know that and so we come here to this text God's the offended party Everyone has disobeyed him again and again and again. And he initiates this communication with Abraham. He has every reason to never, ever speak another word to humankind. The amazing thing is that not only did God speak to Abraham, but he continues to speak to you and I today. And so we have here then this word, The Lord said to Abraham, Go. It's an imperative. It's, it's a command. And notice what God tells him to leave. If you have your Bibles open, the first three verses. He says, go from your country, from your kindred, and from your father's house. That's really leave everything. Give it all up. Leave it all. Leave all that you know. Leave everyone that you know. Leave all that you trust. And leave, leave everything that is, is secure and go. Go from here. Go from Haran. But what follows is, it's it's beyond sort of explanation. Words just don't do it justice. God says, go from these things, but go to a land that I'm going to show you. And then these incredible promises that he makes to him. D.R. Davis summarizes these few verses this way. He calls it a fourfold promise or a quad promise. And he says it involves four things. First, it involves a people. God tells Abraham he will make of him a great nation or he will make him into a great nation and assures him that he will have a seed. Secondly, God says, I've got a place for you. (laughs) What does Jesus say? I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go, I will come again and take you where? To the place I've prepared for you. So he says, I have a place for you. 
You're going to have a home. It's going to be a land that I'm going to show you. And we'll find out that land turns out to be Canaan. And then he offers him protection. He says to him, I will bless your blessers, and the one who disdains you, I will curse. This this protection also involves God's presence. And we'll read a little bit later that God says, I am with you wherever you go. I shall keep you wherever you go. And then finally, it involves a program. In you, all of the families of the ground will be blessed. In other words, Abraham will be the means of blessing through all nations in the world. It's amazing. He says, leave this, but this is what I give you. It's really, I was thinking about this this morning, it's the essence of Psalm 23. It's, it's God's, the same things that God offers you and I as those who are sheep in his, uh, in his pasture. The Lord is my shepherd as we work that through. We're, we're part of his flock. We're, we're part of his people. We have a place that he has in mind. Um, surely you will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. He offers us protection. Even though you walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will be with you. He guides us. He provides for us. He, 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 he has a direction for our lives. And I thought to myself, well, isn't this the gospel? Isn't this the gospel for every single one of us whom hears the call of God and responds? Jesus says, everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. Whatever God asks you to leave, when he taps you on the shoulder and he says, will you trust me? Will you, will you listen to me? Whatever God asks us to leave pales in comparison to what God promises to give us both now and into eternity. And so it's amazing to me that God speaks. And the things that he speaks to Abraham. I want us to just spend our last little bit of time thinking about this call. That, God, that, that, that Abraham receives. It's an outline. It's not my outline, but I filled it out. I just couldn't find a better way of understanding the text. It, first is simply to think of this. God's call is utterly unexplainable. Now God said to Abraham, and think, why Abraham? What is it about Abraham that would catch the eye of God? Why would God choose to work such amazing things through Abraham. Remember, we talked about the world in which he lived. It was a dark world. It was a world that mocked God. Abraham was one of those mockers. This wasn't a great world, and Abraham wasn't a great person. He was an idol worshiper himself. He was a sinner. And not only that, he had nothing to offer. He had no offspring. He had no land. And yet God speaks to Abraham. Can you explain that? Can you explain why God would want anything to do with Abraham? Why God wants to have any part in blessing the world? It's simply unexplainable. There's a lot of things in the Bible I, I, I'd like to debate and I wish I had answers to. What does it mean to be baptized for the dead? 
Um, there's other verses, but this one does catch my attention. And it's no different from us. What is it about you that God would say, I want you to be my friend? Can you explain that? Can you explain why you heard God's call and responded to you? Can you make a list of things if you were to go home today and make a list of things and say, okay, I, this, 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 and this, 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 and, oh yeah, that, and say, that's why God called me? Can you explain why God looked at you and maybe said, oh, here's one who hasn't fallen for the world. I can work with them. See, I think if any of us can explain why God called us, then we don't understand grace and mercy. There's an old hymn. I used to sing it with gusto as a kid in church. I didn't really understand the words. It just it was a Sunday night hymn in a Pentecostal church, and Pentecostal goes crazy sometimes. And it was this song, I know not why his wondrous grace to me he has made known. Like the call of God is utterly unexplainable. To Abraham and to me and to you if you've responded to the call of God. I heard a title for this passage of scripture which I love. For God so loved the world that he called Abraham. And so we find this call on Abraham's life I think utterly unexplainable. Why, God? Why, why did you pick Abraham? But then another thing that I see in the text is that God's call, though, to Abraham is quietly successful. It's fascinating to me, just the words of these phrases, when you, when you just stop and, and sort of poke around them a little bit. And Abraham went. Can you explain that? And as I think about that, there's a, there's a world of questions that run through my head. The Bible always uses an, as a, a, an economy of words. If it didn't, it would be like 18,000 times the size that it actually is already. But I think, well, how did God speak to Abraham? How did Abraham know it was God? What would cause such simple and yet profound obedience? What did Abraham say to his family and friends as he came home from Hanging out with the sheep that day. Hey, guys, God talked to me today. Or did he even tell them? Or did they think he was nuts? He was already 75 years old. What a stupid thing to do, Abraham. We're here for good in Haran. How long did it take him to pack up his stuff and get the caravan ready to head into Canaan? What was it that sparked his trust in the voice of God? Some details are given. You can read there that he took Sarah, his wife, and his brother's um, son, Lot, and gathered all his possessions and all his people, and they left. But not a ton is actually said about it. I was trying to work this through in my head a little bit, and this is kind of some of the things that came to me while I was thinking, why was it successful? Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of Christ. That's what we read in Romans chapter 10. 
As I said last week, Abraham could trace his family lineage back 20 generations to Adam. Certainly, I'm sure he would have heard stories of creation and where God spoke the world into being. There were other interpretations of that. There were other sort of mystical interpretations of how the world came to be. You can read them. There was other interpretations of the flood and of Babel. But I wonder if these words had been part of late-night conversations amongst people as they reclined and enjoyed a meal into the night. Yet God did ensure that the truth of his word was communicated accurately. And what does the writer of Hebrews say about faith? He says, by faith, listen to this, by faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what was seen was not made out of things that are invisible. See, I wonder somehow if Abraham had said, well, this God spoke. And the world came into existence. So if this God speaks to me, I can trust him. He's powerful. And so when this God who spoke the world into existence said to Abraham, go. He had a little bit of confidence in the power of his word. And so he went. Another thing it says in Hebrews, without faith it's impossible to please him, for whatever for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and he rewards those who seek him. There must have been something that tweaked in Abraham's head as as he was having this conversation with God, however that conversation took place, where he not only believed in the power of the word of God, but he also believed that that God existed. And as we've been saying, um, God is real, that changes everything. God exists, that changes everything. And so Abraham said, well, I I believe this God exists, and so he's spoken to me, so I'm going to go. And then as verse 8 of chapter 11 in Hebrew says, By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive an inheritance. I was reading this, um, I think a lot about self-talk again, just for so many reasons. But um, I was reading this little quote, and I think this applies to even Abraham. And the order matters. He says, what we believe shapes how we think. You've got to work that through a little bit, and you can go home and think about that later. But what we believe shapes how we think. So what you will stake your life on, what you will die for, what you think is the explanation for reality, what you think is the explanation for things uh, that, that are visible and uh, things that are invisible, all those kind of things. What you believe will shape how you think. What you think will determine what you do. It's always that way. Your actions always flow from what you're whirling around in your head, not the other way around. Your actions don't determine what you think. What you think determines your actions, always. And then what we do dominates our life, not the other way around. And and so Abraham believed that God existed. He believed that God, through his word, had created the world. And as he believed that, then he started to think that through, started to think what what it meant to have a... To, to know a God like that or to, to believe a God like that. And then when God said go, then that belief which patterned down in his thinking determined his action and he went. It's so true about every area of your life. You can work it out. If you want to know why you do what you do, go back to, well, what was I thinking? And you say that to kids, and what were you thinking? Because we know that <laughs> they weren't thinking much. They were thinking something. 
But what, what is our thinking rooted in? Our thinking is rooted in what we believe. So anyhow, what makes the, God, the, the call of God successful in Abraham's life? I, I think part of it was the apprehension of faith. Abraham believed God. And so he went. And these are the words that every one of us who have ever put our trust and faith in Jesus Christ, it means to us too, it's the simplicity of obedience. Do I trust Christ or do I not? Do I believe that he's God's son or do I not? Do I believe that, that the only way to, a, to, to have perfection in my life is through the righteousness of Christ or don't I? As you think about what you believe and as you work that through in your head and you think those thoughts around, then you will act on those. And it works out in obedience. And so Abraham, he's up in Haran there. I think we might have the map on the wall. It's maybe hard to see. Well, maybe not so hard. So Haran's in the top center of the map. Amazing thing to me is that notice what, how Abraham journeys. He starts in the bottom in Ur, which is where that little boat is, and he goes all the way to the top of 900 kilometers. And it's fascinating to me that God sends him on his journey, and before he's even thought about the land or knows anything about land, he journeys through the full extent of the land that God is going to give him. And so he starts all the way in the top, which is Haran, and Canaan stop, starts at the top, and then he walks all the way down to the bottom, down to Shechem and Beersheba, down at the bottom there. And that's the land that God said one day he would give to his descendants. Which works into the second thing about the call of God and why it's quietly successful. Not only is it quietly successful because Abraham goes, he went. But there's the shamelessness to his worship. Twice in these verses, if you would read them, you find that in verse 6, Abraham passed through the land to the place at Shechem, to the oak at Murray. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abraham and said, there's God speaking to Abraham again. To your offspring I will give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. And you go a little bit later, and Abraham moves down even a little bit farther, and it says, And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. Do you understand what, what we're being told there? The loyalties in Abraham's heart had shifted. His wor See, worship is a public act, isn't it? it it's, it's something that, that when we worship God, we, we worship him every day, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, through our actions. And twice in these verses, we're told that Abraham built an altar. The first place was in Shechem, the Oak of Moreh. The, the Moreh can mean Oak of Testimony or a teacher. And some think that, that this was sort of a, a cult shrine area where people would go and they would, they would, they would try and discern um, 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 a sacrifice they had offered or try and uh, hear a voice that would direct them or guide them in their worship. And you can see that it says, notice clearly, the Canaanites were in the land. This wasn't a, a place of, uh, of God worship. This was a place of pagan worship. And what does Abraham do in the place of testimony? He builds an altar, smack dab in the place where the Canaanites worship at the oak of Moreh. This is a declaration by Abraham. You worship gods, I worship the living God, the speaking God who appeared to me. And when you build an altar, what do you do on an altar? You sacrifice. 
And clearly this sacrifice, Abraham understood that it was a way of making atonement or that a way in which you come to God. You come to God through sacrifice. And in the second, we see Abraham built an altar and he called upon the name of the Lord there. That's simply prayer. It's dependence. It's thanksgiving. It's a declaration. And, and so how do we know the call of God was successful in Abraham? Well, not only did he go, but he was a changed person. He no longer served idols. He now was worshiping the living God publicly. He was in communion with the God that had called him openly, unabashedly, in the midst of pagan Canaanite culture. Now, isn't this another indication of the success of God's call on one's life? Not only do we go out in obedience, but our loyalties are transferred. And I think this is maybe one of the points that the writer is making here. Some do choose God. I'm aware, you know, we could, we could launch in all kinds of theological discussions right now and nuances of what the call of God looks like and how do we hear it, why do some hear it, why do not others hear it, why is there general call and why is there special call and all this kind of thing. The point simply that I want to make here is that some people do recall or do respond to the voice of God. Something happens when, 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 when they're tweaked inside or when their conscience is bothered or when they hear the word of God and they think to themselves, I need help, I need salvation. Some do say, okay, God, I will follow you. As one wrote, and I found this so helpful in life. When God calls us, you know, sometimes we're, we're, we, we worry, well, if, if I respond to the call of God, I'm going to end up in Borneo. Or I'm going to end up in Siberia. Or I'm going to have to go to Bible college. None of which are terrible things. But often the call of God is just, it is, it's a shift. It's a massive shift, but it's a, it's, a, it's a simple shift. It's a shift from doing our own thing to doing what God wants us to do. And as one wrote, all that matters is that his word directs us. And that is worship preoccupies us. I love that. The simplicity of that for the Christian life. If you're wrestling with what it means to be a follower of Christ, I don't think I can put it any simpler. All that matters is that the word of God directs you and that the worship of God preoccupy you. And so that's, I think, how we can see that the call of God was quietly successful and then the final point I'm just looking at the clock the clock is over there for those of you who are on live stream you can't see it but I can see it God's call is seemingly impossible do you see that in this text like when 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 Andrew read it did, did, did something tweak in you is there not something seemingly absolutely and utterly impossible Behind the call of God to Abraham's life. It's almost as though this, this call has not got a chance of ever getting off the ground. First of all, there's this land process or, or, or promise. God says, I'm going to show you a land. And so we saw in that map how God took us from, or Abraham from the top of the land all the way to the bottom. He says, I'm going to show you a land. And as Abraham made his way over the breadth of the land, one, became, one thing became obvious that the land was occupied. 
Canaanites were in the land. Yet God says to him, to you and your offspring, I'm going to give this land. How is a small company of people from Haran going to take ownership of a land that is occupied by Canaanites? Impossible. And then there's a people promise. And God says to Abraham, I'm going to make you a great nation. Or I'm going to make from you a great nation. And not only is it going to come from you, but it's going to come from your seed. And do you remember what we had just read about Sarah? The point is doubly made. Sarah was barren. And Sarah had no children. Having a child was increasingly improbable, and after years of marriage, it was already made clear that it was almost impossible. So what gives here? Often, one wrote, God's way is to preface his great works with extreme difficulties. I know, I know that some of you that are here today and some of you that are watching today are clinging to promises of God. And you're thinking in your head, there's not a chance. There's no hope. This is utterly impossible. There's no way that God is going to be able to do that. It's, it's just, it's too much. It's a figment of my imagination. My heart is playing tricks on me. My, my head is mucking around with me. But do you really trust the promise of God? Do you, do you really believe that with God nothing is impossible? Some of you have probably already experienced this, that things often are most bleak. Before the promise of God is realized. Are you willing to go to your grave. Trusting in the promise of God. See often our circumstances. Leave us reduced to nothing. They leave us powerless. We feel utterly boxed in. And I think sometimes God allows that or sets our circumstances up so that that happens. So that should we survive, should we endure, should we make it, it's obvious that it's only by God's power and by God's grace and by God's mercy that we've come through. I wanted to read, because I think it's more important you hear scripture than me, but we're running out of time. You need to go and read Judges chapter 7 and the story of Gideon. It's a fascinating story. Uh, I'm going to read parts of it for you. Gideon's up against this incredible army. The army is told to be this big. The Midianites and the Amalekites and all the people of the east lay along the valley like locusts in abundance. And their camels were without number as the sand that is on the seashore in abundance. This is the host that Gideon and his men are up again. And if you read the story, Gideon comes before God. God has called him, and Gideon's worked this out. And so the first thing that the Lord says to Gideon is, the people that are with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand. Why? Lest they boast, saying, my own hand has saved me. And therefore... Gideon starts with 32,000 men and God whittles those 32,000 men down to 300. Do you not think that seemed impossible to Gideon? 
that they would ever stand a chance against an army that numbered like locusts? One of my other favorite verses is Chronicles chapter 20, verse 12, when the people of God are surrounded all around by an army that's ready to devastate them. And they say, Lord, we are powerless to do anything about this, but our eyes are upon you. See, I think that's what God sometimes does in our life. He, he promises us or he brings to things which are seemingly impossible. Seemingly impossible. So that when God grants what he promises, there's no question in our mind that it wasn't us, it wasn't our abilities, it wasn't our strength, it wasn't anything about us. It was simply about our great God. So sometimes the God, call of God in our lives is, it, it, not sometimes, all the times, it's unexplainable. Amazingly so. The call of God is quietly successful. I find great assurance in that. And I think is the call of God and what he asks me ever impossible? Never. Because nothing is impossible with God. If you hear God calling you today, will you not trust him? He is worthy of your trust. Father, we come before you today. We're thankful for your word. I pray that as we um, consider these things in our lives today, as we consider your call upon our hearts and our lives, I ask, Father, that we would respond as Abraham did. We whittle it all down. We take all the details away from it, and we simply whittle it down to and Paul went, or Kathy went, or Will went, or whoever's name, we just hear your call and we go, oh, Father, may we trust in you and your power. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.